We, we think, if I could just get the right house, if I could live near the water, if I could just make more money, if I could have the perfect family, then everything would be good. And so man says, you can escape or enhance, but Jesus comes along and he says, no, the point isn't to escape the world, nor is it to enhance the world. The point is that God has done everything in Christ to redeem for himself a people and to completely renew this world for his glory. He says it's not escape, it's not enhance, no. The point is that God in Christ has done everything to redeem for himself a people and to renew this world completely for his glory. In the passage we read earlier from Matthew 19, Jesus speaks of a new world. Do you, do you remember that in the, we read it earlier? Jesus says, truly I say to you, in the new world. That word for the new world is, is the, the, the Greek word palingenesia. And, and it literally means regeneration. The idea is that the world is going to be made completely new when Christ is finally and fully realized as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords at his return. It will be a new heaven and a new earth made perfect. A cosmic renewal that completely transforms this world into a place where God and men dwell together in perfect unity. I imagine you know these words pretty well from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You see, the hope of Christians is not that they're going to float up to heaven, but that heaven's going to come down and renew everything. It's God powerfully transforming and fully redeeming the entire created order. And he will dwell with us. And he will wipe away every tear. And death will be no more, for the former things have passed away. This is why Jesus is described in 1 Corinthians 15 as the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, he's the first installment of this new, resurrected, renewed order of things. He's the first installment of this palingenesia. And what do we learn about Jesus in his resurrection? Think about Jesus in his resurrection. When Jesus is resurrected and he walks on the earth for 40 days, is he some like ethereal ghost, some disembodied spirit? One of my favorite things when you get this picture of Jesus in the resurrection is that, do you know one of the first things he does with his disciples? He eats breakfast. Eggs and scrapple in the resurrection. Do you know what I'm saying? He's got a body. The scars are there. He's with them. They can see him. They can touch him. He's, He's real. You see, in... In, in the palingenesia, in this cosmic renewal, you will hug and laugh and dance and eat and sing. And you'll sing on key. 
right? The pitch will be good. It'll sound right. You'll run. There will be music and art and buildings and sculptures. There will be mountains and rivers and fields and oceans, all far surpassing the beauty of this world because nothing will be corrupted by sin. You will work and play and travel and explore all as fully redeemed children of God. And the best part is that you will see Jesus and he will see you. There will be no obstacle in the way of your fellowship with him or your fellowship with each other. No spiritual dullness, no half-hearted love, no tepid affections, no chronic pain, no deficiency in our understanding, no selfish motives. You will talk and eat and laugh and rejoice with the Lord Jesus Christ and you will know him fully as you are fully known and nothing will ever dampen, diminish, or disrupt the joy of this world made perfect. And Peter's point is that all of history is unfolding toward that end and it's coming soon So be ready and live your lives in light of that future hope. The end is soon. The end is near, Peter says. So live now in every way for the glory of God. That's the second part. The first part, this is the end. The end is coming soon. So now live your life in every way for the glory of God. Look, here's Peter's point. Just like with Brett Archibald. Knowing the end should clarify and concentrate us on what's really important. When you contemplate the end, let it drive you to live for those things that have eternal significance. You see, if everything I just said about the end is true, and it is, then it changes absolutely everything. It changes everything. More than anything, listen to me, more than anything, your future hope, what you are looking forward to, impacts how you live now. Do you know that? More than anything, your future hope, what you are looking forward to, impacts how you live now. I think I've given you this illustration before, but it's a good one, so I'm going to give it to you again. There's two men. Both men are assigned the job of for one year, digging a hole. You've got to dig a hole for a year. The first man, he is given this job, and for his work, for a year of digging, he's going to make $30,000. $30,000 annual salary. The second man is going to make $30 million. They're going to dig differently. They're going to dig differently. The first man is going to grumble. He's going to complain. He's probably going to throw his hand and throw his hands up and give up. I'm digging this hole for $30,000. You barely live on that. The second man, that dude's going to be digging like a Labrador retriever at the beach for the first time. He's going to be digging with a smile on his face. Now, why, though? Is the work of digging any different? No. The second man knows there's something amazing coming. And so that it changes his experience of it now. Do you see? Your future hope impacts more than anything else the way you live your life now. And so Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, and because you know what's coming, therefore live in this way. 
Now, how are we called to live in light of this glorious future hope? I think we can summarize Peter's instruction here in this passage in three ways. First, he says, don't lose your head. Don't lose your head. In light of the end, the end is coming soon, don't lose your head. That's what Peter's saying. He says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. See, Peter knows that for some, the end is going to produce some craziness. I know you know some Christians that when the topic of the end comes up, it gets a little wonky. They start saying some things and acting in some ways, and you're like, I don't, this is, I don't, this is, I don't, what? I don't know what's happening here. There are different brands of this craziness. You know, you've got the end time preppers who are consumed with storing perishables and building shelters and learning how to desalinate water. And then, of course, you've got your predictors. You've got your preppers. You've got your predictors. And those are the ones who, tonight, when they watch the Super Bowl, they're going to decode it for all the prophetic messages. You know those people? <laughs> you know those people? They're the people who think that what Jesus really meant when he said no one knows the day or the hour is that you should just try really hard to figure out what the day or the hour is. So you got, you got, you got preppers, you got predictors, then you got, then you got your pleasure seekers. You got the ones who are going to stick their head in the sand and they're just going to live it up with no real regard for the future. They're going to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And then you got your panickers. That's not a word, but I had to make it, you know, work. You got your panickers who let fear drive them to insanity. You, most of you have lived through this. Like if you, do you remember living through like Y2K? Do you remember, you remember the kind of panic? Do you remember living through like 2012? You're like, my encounter, oh no. Did it be even quick, panic. Do you remember living, I know you remember this. You remember living through COVID-19? Panic, ah, what are we gonna do? Many even among God's people panic. But Peter, Peter calls us to a kind of gospel sanity. He says, don't be a prepper, don't be a predictor, don't be a pleasure seeker, don't be a panicker. He says, be a sober-minded and self-controlled prayer. That word self-control is the same word that we find in Mark 5. Do you remember in Mark 5 when Jesus goes and he heals the demoniac? Do you remember the demoniac? And do you remember how Jesus leaves the demoniac after miraculously healing him? It says he was in his right mind. It's the same word here, self-control. He was in his right mind. He says, don't lose your head. Don't be intoxicated in your mind so that you're beyond reason. No, he says, think soberly with sound judgment. Think biblically. Think scripturally with your mind trained on the most important things. Why? Peter says, for the sake of your prayers. Live with a sober-mindedness for the sake of your prayers. And I think the idea here is that we are to be, uh, to be devoted to God's mission in the world. Jesus taught us to pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you're not going to be able to engage in the mission of God. You're not going to be able to engage in what God has called his people to, and you're not going to be able to pray effectively according to God's will if you are caught up in this kind of eschatological frenzy. 
Are you hearing me say you shouldn't think about the end? Are you hearing me say you shouldn't read or study things about the end? No. What I'm saying is what that should do is produce in us a sober-mindedness, a sober judgment that is committed to prayer and praying for the will of God and praying for God's ends in the world. Peter is saying live every day with the end in view so that your mind and heart are focused on what is most important and so that you give yourself, your time, your energy, your money, your talents to things of eternal value. The end is coming soon, so don't lose your head. By the way, this isn't in my notes, by the way, but do you know what a testimony you are to other believers and especially to the world when stuff starts to go haywire and you don't panic? And they go, what? Look, do you see what's going on? Did you watch the news last night? Did you see what happened here and there? And you go, yeah, it's, it's, it, that's upsetting, but I, I know Jesus reigns. I know that he's in control. Do you, what a testimony it is when we don't panic, but entrust ourselves to a faithful Savior. So he says, don't lose, lose your heads. Second, he says, do love one another. Don't lose your heads, but do love one another. Peter says, uh, maybe the first uh, most important thing we can do in response to this coming end, besides losing our heads, is to love one another. And maybe the first thing worth pointing out is how ordinary, how normal, how even mundane Peter's instructions are. We, We might have expected Peter to say something like this. The end is near. So sell everything you own, quit your job, give all you have to the poor, and devote every waking moment of your life to preaching the gospel to the lost. We might have expected him to say that. Um, You you ever play that game? It's like, you know, what would you do if you had a week to live? Or you've got seven days. You know, and we always come up with these like very radical plans. But Peter's like, "The, the end is near. The end is coming soon. So love each other. In verse 8, he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, Peter has already exhorted us multiple times throughout this letter to Christian love. Chapter 1, verse 22, chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 3, verse 8. In fact, the very last note Peter sounds in this final verse of the letter is a call to love one another. You don't know this, but I walked in here this morning, and this, you can't see it, but if I turn that around, it's a Valentine's Day kissing booth. And Peter's final call in his letter is to greet one another with a kiss of love. So that's after the service. We're going to line up to greet one another with a kiss of love. I'll just play, but it's a call. It's a call to love one another. This is the defining characteristic and the primary fruit of our faith in Christ's love in culturally appropriate ways. He says, love one another since love covers a multitude of sins. He's quoting Proverbs 10, 12, which says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And perhaps Peter is anticipating the way in which suffering and trial can make us prickly and raw and quick to take offense. The point here is that love does not look for ways to be offended. It assumes the best of one another. It's quick to forgive and eager to absorb the real hurt of sin out of love. That's what forgiveness is when you absorb the hurt 
that, that, that's caught, that, that you endure, that is uh, aimed at you, but you endure it and absorb it out of love. Peter says, keep loving one another in this way with a real affection for and devotion to one another. Now, this love is not merely a deep affection for your brothers and sisters, but it is love that expresses itself. And so he goes on in verses 9 to 10 to say, this love should express itself in joyful hospitality. Remember again, I'm saying Peter's argument here is the end is coming soon. So show hospitality to one another. Isn't this incredible? Peter says, in light of the end, invite each other over for dinner. Embrace, welcome, show kindness to, and treat each other as family. J.C.F. Williamstown, can I, can I exhort you to show loving and joyful hospitality to one another? Invite each other into your homes. Invite each other into your schedules, into your very lives. The Christian ethic of love is not about superficially entertaining guests, nor is it about fostering shallow relationships with acquaintances. It's about welcoming one another into your lives because God has welcomed you into his and because you're going to spend all eternity with your brothers and sisters. You know, look around and it's like, you guys... We together are going to exist together for all eternity. So start spending some time together. Get used to it. Though Peter adds, do this without grumbling. That is, do it joyfully. Not not murmuring to yourself about having to clean or prepare. Do it without complaining about the additional expense of food, time, energy, or the mess little kids leave behind. Hospitality is costly. Listen, hospitality is costly. It is. And yet if you have encountered someone who is truly hospitable, you know what a gift and what an expression of love it really is. Who are the people that you know that excel in hospitality? What is it about them that made you feel welcomed and and loved? I can guarantee you it was not that their house was immaculately clean. I can guarantee you it was not that they prepared for you a gourmet four-course dinner. It wasn't because they executed some perfect plan to entertain you for two and a half hours. It was how they made you feel like you belonged. Like you were truly welcome. Like you were appreciated. They were glad that you were there and happy to invite you into their lives. There wasn't anything put on, no pretense, no performance, but there was genuine love and concern. Brothers and sisters, we need to reclaim the practice of hospitality, both in the way that we show hospitality to one another, and if I can go a little bit beyond Peter's intentions here, the way that we show hospitality to the lost. You know, when Paul would go into a place, he would go to the synagogues, and he would go to the marketplace to preach the gospel. And I've often asked myself, you know, here in South Jersey, where are those places that we go to engage with the lost? And the conclusion that I've come to in, in sort of suburban South Jersey is, do you know where most of those conversations happen? Where deep, heart-level conversations happen, where you get to know someone? Most of those conversations when you have someone around the dinner table. 
Most of those conversations ha- happen when you invite someone into your, to- into your home and you get to know them and ask them questions about their life. So show hospitality to one another as an expression of love. Lastly, in light of the end, Peter says, express your love in willing service to one another. That is, use the gifts God has given you to help sustain and prepare one another for that day. You see what he says there. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. If you are in Christ, God, by his spirit, has uniquely gifted you in some way, according to his varied grace, so that you might serve your brothers and sisters, so that you might serve and build up the body of Christ. God has wisely and providentially ordered your upbringing, your experiences, your talents, your education, your desires, and most importantly, he has poured his spirit into your hearts so that you have been equipped with gifts that you are called to use for the sake of the body. And Peter's point is that as an expression of your love, you ought to use those gifts to serve one another. You you, you see, the end is coming. But in the meantime, we got stuff to do. And we will do that infinitely better when we work together using the varied gifts God has given us for the sake of his glory in the world. Maybe you don't know how God has gifted you. If that's the case, can I just recommend that you do what the early church did? Just go online and take the spiritual tests, spiritual gifts tests. Nah, I, I'm just kidding. You, I'm not, nah, it sounds like, uh, maybe there's some value to this. I'm not saying there's no value to this. I took those tests, you know. You just, I think a better approach, though, is to lean on people who know you and who you trust and ask them for help. You, do you know we're typically pretty bad at evaluating ourselves? We're a pretty bad judge of ourselves. So find brothers or sisters you trust and ask them to help you discern how God has gifted you. And similarly, so sometimes we need help from other people to know where we're gifted, but also you can be that help for someone. Be someone who is quick to tell a brother or sister areas where where you see giftedness and strengths that would serve and build up the body. And, And look, I'm not primarily talking about Sunday morning. There are obviously many ways on a Sunday morning that, that uh, some of you have gifts that can be helpful and can build up the body on a Sunday morning. We're always looking for people to you know, like help set up in the morning and sound and music and uh, you know, uh, nursery. And, and there, there are ways to serve on a Sunday morning. But I think what Peter has in mind here is more the, the regular, ordinary, unremarkable ways in which we use our gifts to serve each other throughout the week. He uses the language of speaking and serving. You catch that? Those who speak as those who speak oracles of God and and serve. 
as those with the, with the strength that God supplies. And I think the idea here is that we're supposed to use our mouths and use our bodies for the benefit of others. So throughout the week, encouraging one another with a word from Scripture. Bringing a meal. Offering to watch kids while a frazzled mom goes to go grocery shopping. Helping with a a house repair. Offering to come over and pray with someone. Inviting someone to share about a difficult season they're going through. Helping a family move. Giving a ride. Offering wise counsel. These are all ways that we can express gifts of service and mercy and compassion and wisdom. Peter reminds us that in whatever way we serve, we must do it in the strength God supplies, knowing first that the power to exercise those gifts, and second, the fruit that comes from those gifts ultimately is from him. So Peter says, the end is coming soon. Don't lose your heads. Do love one another. And lastly, he says, do everything for God's glory. Don't lose your head. Do love each other. And lastly, Peter says, look in these final verses of our passage. He says, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Notice that this passage is the end of a larger portion of the letter that begins in chapter 2, verse 11, where Peter is exhorting these Christians to live gospel-shaped lives before the unbelieving world so that they, they might give glory to God on the day of visitation. So if you, if you have your, um, your Bible open, let me show you this real quick. So you see chapter 2, verse 11. Do you see how it, be, it begins? What word does it begin with? Chapter 2, verse 11. What's the first word? Beloved. Okay, now look at our passage. Okay, do you see our passage ends in verse 11? And then you see in verse 12, what word does it start with? Beloved. It's a new section. That whole, that whole 211 through 411, that's all one section. And he's exhorting us. And do you see how they're bookended by this reality of giving glory to God? We're to, we're to live before the Gentiles, to keep our conduct pure before the Gentiles so that they might see our good deeds and give glory to God on the day of visitation. And then it's bookended again by this idea that God would receive all glory and praise and just bookended. It's a section. Okay, okay but um, notice also that he says that God would receive glory through Jesus Christ. Well, that's kind of surprising because Peter's telling us about how we should live our lives in light of the coming end. And so you would think that he would say that God might receive glory through you, through the way you live your lives. But he says, through Christ. Okay, so here's what I think Peter's doing. Okay, listen, here's what I think Peter's doing. There is a unique way in which the person and work of Jesus Christ are put on display when we live our lives with the end in view. Loving, welcoming, serving one another before the unbelieving world 
so that God receives the glory he is eternally worthy of. Do you hear what I'm saying? There is a unique way that the person and work of Jesus Christ is put on display through our lives as we live with the end in view. Loving, welcoming, serving one another as we do that before the unbelieving world. And so God receives glory through Christ, as it were. As they would see Christ in us, God receives glory. Make sense? Peter says, keep your heads. Think think about this. Here's what I want you to see in these final minutes. I want you to see how is it that Jesus Christ would be uniquely seen in the way we live our lives with the view and end, with, with the end in view. Wow, I said that backwards. With the end in view. Think about it. Peter says, keep your heads. Don't lose your minds when you contemplate the end, but pray for God's will with sober minds. What do you find Jesus doing when he is confronted with his end? When Jesus comes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and as God the Father would hold out to him the cup of his righteous wrath, and as Jesus would contemplate his end, as he would consider the cross, the great end to which his whole life had been straining, what does he do? Does he panic? Does he run? Does he clamor for some way to survive it? No. He prays with self-control and sober-mindedness, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. He prays that he might be strengthened to endure the suffering and agony of having the punishment of your sin poured out entirely on him. And as he considers his end, he keeps his head. Why? Why does Jesus keep his head in the garden? As he would see the horror that he is about to experience, why does Jesus keep his head? So that he can show you his unending love for you. So that he can welcome you. So that he can serve you. The Son of Man came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, don't, don't you see, in, in his death, his heart was to serve you. His heart was to lay down his life for you so that you would not have to bear the penalty of your own sin and so that you would be welcomed in to the very family of God. The author of Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy that Jesus saw? You see, Jesus didn't look only at his death, but he actually looked through his death to what it would accomplish. The great joy of knowing that what his death and resurrection would accomplish is that you would get to come in. You see, he was cast out so that you could be brought in. Do you realize that Jesus' hospitality towards you cost him absolutely everything? His welcoming you came at the very cost of him being cast out. And it was his great joy to pay it because of his love for you. 
And when you live this way, loving and showing hospitality and serving one another, you uniquely point to him. You uniquely point to the Savior who says, I love you so much, I'm willing to be cast out that you might be brought in. I'm willing to come into the world and make myself obedient to the point of death on the cross so that I might serve you. You see, when God gives you eyes of faith to see that, then and only then will you love each other and welcome each other and serve each other like this. Do do you know Christ's love for you? Have you cried out to the Lord saying, my only hope is if you serve me? Not because we're worthy of it. But because it's the only way whereby we have the forgiveness of sins and entrance into his kingdom. Though you are utterly unworthy, have you known the warm welcome of God which Jesus paid for with his blood? Everyone who puts their trust in this Savior, maybe even today for the first time, has the sure and living hope that when that day comes, you will receive a greeting like you cannot imagine. We will rise to meet the Lord. We're going to sing this in a little bit. We'll rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be no more, and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Brothers and sisters, the the end is near. The day is coming soon when we will be welcomed into the joy of his loving embrace forever. So live now, loving and welcoming and serving one another so that in every way Christ would be seen and God would receive the glory. As you would put the end in view, as you would live with the end in view, as you would look forward to that future hope, Live in every way for the glory of God. Let it focus you and clarify for you what is most important and live in every way for the glory of God and the grace that he supplies through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for this hope that we have that one day death and sin will be no more, that we will feast in endless joy that it's real, that heaven will come down, that it's not some ethereal, nebulous existence, but that we will laugh and hug and play and sing together, that we will know you, that we will see our Savior face to face, that he will wipe away our tears, and that's not just a metaphor, but we will feel his hands upon our cheeks wiping our tears away as we experience the full realization of what it is to be known and loved by you. Lord, help us to eagerly anticipate that day and to live in light of it for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.